Bonjour et bienvenue au Musée Morbide. <laughs> I, we are your hosts, Katie Mead and Luke Boyd here. And today we will be taking ever so tentative and terrified steps into the horrifying Le Théâtre du Grand Guignol, a.k.a. The Grand Guignol. Yay! I need tranny subtitles for this podcast. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to give you a choice right up front. Either I can do this saying the words as correctly as I can. You should. I can Americanize the French and say Grand Guignol. Guignol. No, I think you should. I think you should do lean into the French. Go French. Try to it be up. as try French to be as authentic up. as I can. Yeah. Uh, I took French in school, and I'm really hoping to make the Duolingo owl proud of me today because I <laughs> <laughs> I restudied French a couple of years ago because uh, me and my husband are, were going to Quebec. And so I thought it would be a nice thing to do for the people there because I know that they, they hate English. Anyway, uh, before we dive in, Luke, prior to this, had you ever heard, prior to me, to knowing me and me talking about this, had you ever heard of the Grand Guignol as a thing or even as a term? I have not. Beyond the Google Doc that we share, I have not heard about this at all. Gotcha. So uh, I will I will define it for us first, Please, and then we can talk about uh, things that you actually have experienced that are more Grand Guignoli. Uh, so today, the term you may hear it used uh, applied to any form of dramatic entertainment featuring something really, really, really gruesome and horrible. Oh. Uh, but for our purposes, uh, from 1897 to its final curtain call in 1962, the Grand Guignol was a theater located in the Pigalle district of Paris. It had wow. its roots, yeah, it had its roots in naturalism, and it specialized in creating uniquely gory and terrifying plays and can absolutely be considered the precursor to what we now know as the modern horror film. In particular, I would say it's most like uh, the torture porn variety of films like oh the Saw franchise or Hostel, but it definitely has inspired far more uh, movies beyond just those. But I would say it has the most in common with the gorier of the movies, you know, slasher movies, which is why it's so cool that unknowingly I plan to do this episode the week after you did Cropsy, which is a <laughs> horror film and is absolutely Grand Guignol style. I think we're finding some sub themes here, some commonalities with these Are topics you? that we didn't even know. Kidding me. <laughs> so is this like, is this bordering on like snuff? Is that, is that not correct? Mm, no, not quite. I mean, it's because <laughs> it's like snuff real. Isn't that what it's <laughs> I'm sorry, you all yes, I did get to... by that horse. Yeah. Um... Are you all trying to tell us something? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just trying to get to the mindset here. Um but what I was gonna say, so my first foray into uh the world of the Grand Guignol was two specific examples. One, I mentioned in our intro episode that you know, I watched Sweeney Todd at a very young age. Mm -hmm. And if you know the show or if you've seen the movie, the Johnny Depp movie, um, it is very bloody. It's, <laughs> it's very gory and yeah, there's yeah, a lot of blood. Yeah, it's very bloody, very gory. It also has 
this same concepts of the, that the Grand Guignol would hold very near and dear in that it is very melodramatic mm. um, in terms of the acting styles. Um, yet at the same time, there's a lot of naturalism in it in that you're not being spared anything. You're you're viewing the thing as it's happening. If that if that makes sense, I'll I'll better explain sort of some of these theater terms as mm-hmm. we move along. But so that was when I was reading up because I was a theater history nerd from very young. I was reading up on sort of what you know the impetus behind making Sweeney Todd was, and they talk in great detail about oh we were inspired by the Grand Guignol. So I right. And then you, I saw other examples of that along the way. And actually a great example of Grand Guignol being portrayed in film is, have you ever seen Interview with a Vampire? Yes. I love that movie. So do you remember the scene in the later half when they're in like that super crazy, scary, like vampire yes. coven theater? Yes. That's supposed to be... The, oh essentially the vampire Antonio, Antonio Banderas coming down the whole thing is bloody as hell it's scary and it's I mean, very scary and they and so if you recall that scene mm. <laughs> spoilers everyone mm-hmm. um there's a girl who's essentially being sacrificed to all these vampires and right. she's she's nude she's so vulnerable you can like feel the terror in her but also in yourself there's like this tool of hypnotism is used all mm-hmm. of that is Grand Guignol. They're literally doing an impression. It's like of Grand the darkest. Guignol. It's like the darkest part of the movie. It's a great movie in honor of uh, Gay Pride Month because, man, the homoeroticism in that film it is <laughs> the gayest movie of all time. It's and so every though. every LGBT person out there is, is all over this film. Many a child of the '90s came of age via that film. <laughs> That's right. That's right. We're frozen. So, yeah. So sexy. Um, that was before <laughs> vampires were really emo and like, I'm sad because I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but not peak, dead. That's, that's peak. Was it Anne Rice? That's peak. Uh, I think so. Peak. Peak vampire content. Mm-hmm. So. That is the best example I could give you for those of you who've seen the movie of what Grand Guignol is. And I am now going to dive deeper into this world of depravity with you. Uh, So if we were to use Luke's episode of Cropsy last week as like his uh, magnum opus. (laughs) (laughs) What I'll be remembered for. (laughs) What you'll be remembered for. Uh, Grand Guignol, this is is the most in my wheelhouse we'll probably get on this show as someone who uh, was a theater professor. So I'm- This is your passion. I'm dusting off my theater professor cloak. Good, I love it. <laughs> and I love diving it. right in. So, you're teaming. You're teaming with content right now. I'm so. I love it. And you're I'm, beaming. You're beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I'm alive with content. <laughs> uh, so, Le uh, Théâtre du Grand Guignol, also known as the Grand Guignol, uh, actually directly translates into the theater of the great puppet, and mm. it doesn't sound like it fits at all when you first hear the translation, but I'll explain to you why it was chosen. So uh, so that name comes from what essentially was almost a Punch and Judy style uh, puppet oh, character. Interesting. And his name was his name was Guignol. He supposedly was named after a real person, a silk worker in Lyon, France in the mm. early, early 1800s. Wow. And this little character, Guignol, is essentially representing the workers. And so it actually is fairly political. 
Really? It's, subver it's subversive. Mm -hmm. um, but that's how Punch and Judy is too. It's like, yeah, it's for kids, but also yes. is it for kids? There's commentary there. Yeah. Right. So this had that too, to the point where it even got banned at one point by Napoleon III's police force. Uh, so the idea is that grand guignol, meaning great or large puppet, you could consider this theater the grown-up version of Little Guignol, where, sure, he was subversive and political, but now let's get really raw and nasty and gritty and hold nothing back and tell it exactly like it is. So that's the difference between Guignol and Grand Guignol. Hmm. Let's talk about the person who named it the Grand Guignol. A gentleman by the name of Oscar Metinier. He was the child of a cop himself, actually. And he eventually served as the police superintendent's uh, secretary, or as some publication said, the superintendent's dog, which yeah. I love. It. It's so French, right? That's right. <laughs> fucking Doug. You fucking Doug. <laughs> <laughs> like a dog could be like a tool as well. Like you like a, you put a dog in like a window and exactly. turn it like you so can imagine. An object. Yep, mm. and he's reporting things and snooping around. Yeah, totally. Mm. Um, but because of that experience, both of what he saw with his father and then his his professional experience, he spent a lot of his life observing really the darker parts of society right. um, and spending a lot of time in the working class and the poorest, most, you know, destitute environments. And he attended many trials and many executions. Oh, wow. <laughs> and he was completely fascinated by human psychology and what motivates people to do these terrible things. And so his his thinking and his mindset is very much of the time because this is when uh, naturalism begins to come to be in the theater world. And uh, Luke, are you familiar? How good is your theater history? <laughs> you know, I I know a fair amount about you know different kinds of theat the theatrical movements and moments, but I That's wasn't great. really I wasn't really a theater student per se. I took some sure. classes in college, but I was always like more of an elective theater person. So yeah, you don't have to go through a lot of this. Yeah, stuff. I'm like, was Paul Newman a naturalist? I don't even know. But <laughs> <laughs> was he a realist? Was he just a super Americanist? I don't know. <laughs> Was he natural in that, in that he liked to walk around with his shirt off? I don't know. That's what I think it was. Yeah, it's like natural. It's like, oh, I don't do, I just, I'm just beautiful. I don't need any makeup. It's natural. I mean, <laughs> that was Paul Newman. Uh, for you non-theater nerds and those people like Luke who are just deeply confused, Please naturalism, naturalism is a form of theater that came about in the late 19th century. And it is very similar to realism, which mm -hmm. also was coming out around a sim similar, a little bit before. Um, but the big difference between the two is that it's rooted more in this concept of social Darwinism, mm -hmm. right? So meaning everyone in society is fighting to survive. Only the strong survive. And it also considers, again, looking at Medinier and so all these other, uh, you know, naturalists, they look at this idea of, okay, but like, what are the things around you that are making you the person that you are? Also, what have you inherited that makes you the way that you are? So it tries to look at things from a much more scientific mm. mindset. And so there is a lot of, 
surprisingly science involved in the story and history of the Grand Guignol. And this is sort of the very beginning of that story. And then it graduates to literal scientists helping write the scripts to make them as disgustingly accurate as possible. <laughs> wow. So like trying to unpack the mind of the killer with like early psychology. Yeah. And not just killer because not everyone, not everyone in a naturalist play is a murderer. I mean, sure. you know, my best example to give to anybody, if you're, if you're interested in reading naturalism, the, the best example that anyone would give is uh, Miss Julie by August Strindberg. That's probably mm. the most famous play um, in the naturalism movement. And so what separates this from the previous decades and centuries of theater is that realism and naturalism, they are not telling stories of kings and queens. They're not doing histories like Shakespeare. They're not doing right. ghosts and mm -hmm. gods and monsters like the Greeks or anything like that. This is mm -hmm. supposed to be about real people dealing right. with real life issues in real time. And when I say real time, I mean that. Like in Miss Julie, the entire play happens in the kitchen over the course of a night. Right. That's it. So you are, and, and good naturalistic plays that follow like basically their, their form, yeah. they should function that way. And most of the Grand Guignol plays do. There's a few so here. It's, as if, we're, it's as if we're just like start, starting a clock or opening a window and you're getting this view into their life, whether it's an hour or three hours. That's, That's fascinating. Exactly right. So it's cool. almost it's almost like voyeuristic in that way of like you're mm. you literally just stumbled into this. We're not <laughs> we're not putting on a show for you. This is just happening for you. Mm -hmm. Um and so part of naturalism also was so if that's the truth, we're not gonna be all prim and proper like some of these, you know, French comedies and all these other things would be. We're gonna talk about sex, we're gonna talk about sex workers we're mm -hmm. going to talk about crime we're going to talk about our periods we're going to we're going to keep it real <laughs> and so it's just obviously already going to be pretty controversial uh a lot i imagine of for you there's got to be like some grand guignol that takes place on a toilet and like <laughs> you're expl exploring that whole thing knowing your freaking twisted interests <laughs> I'm devastated to tell you I did not find a single toilet story in the Grand Even Kingdom. the French know when to stop. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just me. I don't and know. And when they stall, she closed the door. You don't see. No, no. No, 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 no. No, 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 no one needs to do this. <laughs> uh, amazing. So anyway. <laughs> so and naturalism and realism, they work for us. You know, like everybody enjoys like fantasy or sci-fi or whatever, but we watch movies or, or theater that has realism, or in this case, naturalism, because we connect to that mm -hmm. in a very different way, because we are able to put ourselves in those characters' shoes. Much easier to suspend our disbelief when it's more realistic. And what is more incredibly upsetting than watching something bad happen to a realistic person? and now putting yourself in that shoes. That, sure. my friends, is how you create terror. That's how you make someone scared while they're watching something that isn't actually happening to them. It's actually brilliant when right. you come down like to it. When they're slicing into a rubber patient on Nip Tuck, like, and mm -hmm. I'm cringing, can't, can't look at it, can't, can't deal with it. Yeah, Way absolutely. too real, can like feel it, can like. <laughs> and I should make it clear that while Grand Guignol is sort of rooted in naturalism, 
naturalism isn't gross like Grand Guignol. <laughs> it's, its, right. own. it's It's not a horror school of theater. <clears throat> I'm so sorry, everyone. I'm going to try my best to not cough directly on mic, um, but I am still... I'm COVID-free technically, but I think I'm going to have this cough till the day I die. So I'll keep it until we at least maybe cover tuberculosis or something. But in the meantime, <laughs> I'm powering through as best I can. I have a little wheeze too. You might hear me. Yes. Medinier had started writing uh, fictions and plays here and there. And it was at about 1887 that he teamed up with Andre Antoine, another famous, famous uh, theater maker. Uh, and he created the Théâtre Libre. Uh, and Metinier was part of that. He was essentially a co-founder and became a regular playwright. for sort. And it was sort of like this workshop theater where mm. you could bring in this new work. It was all rooted in naturalism. So it was all of these really controversial, sexy new uh, works of art that I'm sure, I'm, it must have been so scary and exciting to be a part of yeah at the time for sure um so his works were known as a comedy rose which apparently rose directly (laughs) translates to worn out horse which i think is hilarious (laughs) let me tell you what the french language is very funny um (laughs) but basically it means like a like a bitter comedy or like you know there's a lot of um, darkness behind what you're mm. what you're laughing at, um, and all of the comedy Ross were uh, inspired by news stories that were supposed to be just like little little tidbits that they'd have in in local papers, um, and it would be about you know a, a local thief or a mm-hmm. sex worker or something like that, and so this was the type of work that he dove into head first. Uh, no. I got to tell you some of the plays and some of their plots. They're so great. One of his plays while he was at uh, Théâtre Libre was uh, Un Famille or Famille. I forget how you say it in French. Hmm. Sorry, everybody. Um, it's about a family that consists of a thief, a drunk, a sex worker. <laughs> <laughs> and they're discussing the execution of a fellow criminal and friend. <laughs> and that's the whole thing. It's like, that's, that's it. That's the whole play. That's it. Um, but there's no, but the point is, and why this is, I, it might be hard for a modern audience to understand why this is such a big deal is because these characters aren't being written with judgment. Mm. We're not going to condemn them because this is who they are. Nothing bad happens to them at the end of the play. They're not punished for this. Right. Aside from this one friend who they're talking about. This is a, this is just a, a, like you said, Luke, this is just a window into their world Mm -hmm. and it's not bogged down by you know the morals and the religious beliefs of the bourgeoisie the upper classes this is about right. the workers this is about the lower classes and their plight and i'm sure they felt some some level there was some level of satisfaction in seeing the you know whether it was justice meted out to someone who deserved it or just the just the the catharsis of seeing a sort of violent act played out or seeing something sensational you know for the working class must have been such an escape yeah i mean to see someone who was like you yeah. You know, I think, yeah. and I'm sure that, and I'm sure some of that was split also because I think s- some people f- probably felt disgusted by it and there was mm-hmm. outrage and there were things that were banned. Um, they were only able to do certain things within that workshop space of uh, Teatre Libre. Um, 
some plays could never be done publicly outside of that. So yeah, I mean, you know, people, a lot of people weren't super into it, <laughs> but you're right. I think it must've been an amazing thing to witness it when they, that's just not what the plays were like before. Right. It's such a rejection of the form. Mm -hmm. It's awesome. But all of this creates a really great tough skin for Oscar Metinier. Because he's used to people saying, your work is trash. <laughs> right. I'm going to keep doing it. Screw I don't want to hear about your prostitutes. Um, <laughs> uh, Metinier has gotten so good at working on these naturalistic works that he decides he's going to venture out on his own and start his own theater. And so, yeah, boy, get yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. He decides to open Le Grand Guignol. And so he, one of the first plays is actually, he, he wrote Lui. United a, mm, again, this is not my language, united a whore and a criminal in the enclosed space of a hotel room. <laughs> and my personal favorite, get ready, La Brème, or my this wonderful English translation, meat ticket. <laughs> so if oh, you want to go to the deli? My meat ticket. Yes. So... You may think of it in, in those terms as if it has to do with a deli. However, apparently your Le Brême was a card that was that prostitutes, ladies of the evening, had no. to obtain from the French police in order to have permission to work in a brothel or work the streets or wherever it is they were going to um, meet their johns. Right. So, as opposed to a ticket to ride, a ticket to meet. I mean... It's kind of a ticket to ride. <laughs> Depending on the meat we're talking about, yeah. <laughs> but chick. So yeah, uh, your uh, meat ticket. Uh, wow, is just the greatest. The greatest That's fucking title classic. ever. And meat ticket is a fucked up play. I read a little bit of it, but mm. basically, it's um, a family is talking about one of the daughters and how she's got this great relationship with this priest and everything. And the priest apparently advises her to like stay with her family as long as possible. She's like, all right, guys, I'm going to stick around. So that means I'm going to become a prostitute just like my <laughs> sister. And the family's like, yay. No. <laughs> so there's always like multiple, multiple uh, uh, ne'er-do-wells, criminals. You know, my I'm a prostitute. My mom's a prostitute. Like everybody's a prostitute. Whereas, you know, usually the villain is vilified as one singular demonic or transformed or you know malnourished figure with at this point with uh Benier's plays it is about this is this is just people these are just the people that are here and especially in I'm going to talk a little bit about where this theater was in the Pigalle district uh it wasn't a nice neighborhood <laughs> mm -hmm. so this is what people were used to they knew where they were you know and so right. these are the kinds of characters you're going to be surrounded by He's actually only there uh, serving as the founder director for about a year. And it's a little tricky to figure out why he left. Uh, some mm -hmm. people say health issues or whatever. But um, mm. more importantly, uh, a gentleman by the name of Max Moy, uh, he takes over in 1898. So the theater starts in 1897. Moy is on board in 1898. Mm. And he's there from 1898 to 1914. So he's got a nice little tenure there mm -hmm. um he's a really interesting guy a real showman appreciated publicity loved a good publicity stunt he's he's <laughs> awesome i love him um and he's the one who thought 
this is me paraphrasing fantastically. You know, this naturalism stuff is like fine and great and all, but I feel like we could really be capitalizing on the worst parts of it. Like I get that you're trying to make a point politically and you have Mm -hmm. a whole message or whatever, but I feel like maybe we can make it scary. So this is where it gets really good, right? Yeah. So (laughs) this isn't even like the full fruition of it, but this is how it becomes known as a theater of horror. Right. Mm -hmm. Let's let's make it super real. Yeah. And so, and he was right because at that point, the problem with those naturalistic plays is I just read you examples. They're all very similar. Yes. So you can get tired of that. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, and so it was it was done to death and naturalism mm-hmm. didn't last much longer after that either. It was a very right. short-lived art form for that very mm. reason. Um, so Monsieur Moret felt the best thing for business would to be to shift the focus farther away from hashtag proletariat problems. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to see if I can get that trending and dive deep into the darkest depths of human depravity. Now, uh, he was actually an engineer before he decided to become a theater entrepreneur. Isn't that fascinating? That's quite a pivot. Yeah. So anyway, this this phenomenal Frenchman, uh, he was also a writer. So he he had just had this interest and this fascination in this macabre uh, material. And Mm. so he wrote for the Grand Guignol as well. And he, you know, he was he was fine, but he was the one who really brought in the greatest talents. Um, and really, truly, it goes without saying, the king of the Grand Guignol, as far as playwrights go, is André Delorde, who is actually like a phenomenal writer. I think it's easy to assume because I'm saying these are horror plays that it's like, oh, it's like, you know, gimmicky, slashery stuff. Right. Like, oh, it's B like movie, scream. But a play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But some of these plots are very, very good. And mm. um, the writing, the dialogue is very good. They're not, they're not corny. Right. It's not like canned content. No, no. Very unique, they're, very artistic. Yeah, they're very well they're very done. good. Um, awesome. if done if done well, they're very very good. Um so he brought on him and and uh other playwrights as well who were fantastic including he's the one who felt like you know, let's let's include these scientists, these people who do have these backgrounds in naturalism to enhance the quality of these plays and Andre Delord actually wrote quite a few of his plays with Alfred Binet, who was a scientist at the time. There's some oh, people, wow. there's some people who said uh, that he might've been his therapist, which I'm like, you're writing plays with your therapist boundaries. You guys <laughs> boundaries. <laughs> That's fantastic. But like before we have like movie consultants for like, you know, historical accuracy or like, you know, right. biomed- biomedical research on ER. That's awesome. You got these like scientists coming in to, 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 Get the veracity of these motivations and these dialogues. Isn't that amazing? And, and phenomenal. It's, it's yeah, no, I mean, it's dramaturgy. It's what I do, man. It's, it's high turge. Yeah. yeah, it's this high level of turgen. <laughs> or turgen. Turgen, as I like to say. Yeah. Um, so he, uh, 
in that same vein, as I mentioned before, he was a great showman and he loved a publicity stunt. He also decided, well, let's make sure people are scared before they even get here. <laughs> so he basically started having house doctors there with the okay. idea that, oh, oh people are going to faint. People are going <laughs> to get sick. There's going to be a possibility that someone could even die like someone in the audience. So we should have doctors on hand. And so you think about what a brilliant publicity stunt that is, because if I'm going to a theater and I know that that's there, I'm like, oh my God, this is going to be really fucking scary. (laughs) People, people die from this. People throw up when they see this. Why is there a barf bag under my seat? Jesus. And here's, here's something about me, which makes me doing this topic that much more hilarious. I don't watch those kinds of horror movies. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is a passion of yours but you'd be paralyzed if you were actually encounter I would, it i don't think i could ever see it in person because i i would be the person that would throw up and faint i know it <laughs> i know it i'm i'm a Just very sensitive surrender soul. surrender my body to the ground guignol help me <laughs> and uh you know, some of it's some of it's legend, some of it's fable, but um there's reason to believe that people did in fact pass out pretty regularly during the performances because they were just so gruesome um people talk about oh you would you would be in the theater and you'd watch people pass out and then as soon as you'd walk out of the theater there were people throwing up in the streets it's just (laughs) like awful (laughs) i was dodging vomit left and right it was marvelous (laughs) i survived the blood and the vomit and the fainting (laughs) This is again also giving me aristocrats vibes, and I'm just like, <laughs> there's too much going on. I know, I know. So yeah, he he is part of what made this an experience, wow. and not just commercialized. Yeah. yeah. And so speaking of the experience, let's talk about the place itself because the venue. Everybody says the venue was part of what made it so special. Um, so as I said, it was located in the Pigalle district of France. Um, that's in which the, is where that's in the ninth arrondissement in Paris. Mm. Um, and the exact address I have it written down is 20 bis rue Chapdel. Maybe that's how you say that. <laughs> but anyway, uh, and as I said before, Pigalle, both then and now, has always had a bit of a reputation. It's it sounds like from what I've seen, it's it still has a red light district. Okay. So it's still a little seedy and sexy mm-hmm. and the you know, hopefully corner of Paris. Yeah. Yes, hopefully not so murdery as <laughs> it was in the theater. Um, but yeah, it was the perfect backdrop for this because that your experience of the show starts the moment you're walking down the cobblestones towards the theater and just there's this stench mm. all around you. Mm-hmm. This this lower working class people all around you. You're you're sort of preparing yourself for the experience you're about to have. So mm. when you walk into the theater, you may notice above you, there are two large carved angels. And you think, huh? Aww. Why? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, nice. I, and I will tell you why. It's because it was actually originally a chapel. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Fucking A. I love it. How great is that? Perfect. That is so perfect. Isn't it? it? So it it was a chapel that was actually 
ruined during the 1791 reign of terror. So what a historical Whoa, building, right? What Isn't a that witnessed. incredible? Oh my God. Yeah. That building saw some stoof. Yeah. That's and, a trip. I know. So from there, it actually then became like a blacksmith shop. <laughs> I know. Close to home. Um, I know. And then uh, after that, I think it became a chapel again. After mm -hmm. that, it became an artist studio. The Chapel of the Scorched Angels. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then uh, after it was a chapel for the second time, then it became an artist studio. Then it was turned into a theater. And that was called the Teatro Salon. And it was much lighter fare there, I assure you, mm -hmm. until uh, Metinier purchased it in uh, 1897 and turned it into the Grand Guignol. But it came mm. with all this amazing church accoutrement. No yeah. one had bothered changing it over all those years, even when it was a fucking blacksmith shop, which is also <laughs> really intimidating. You're walking into a blacksmith shop and there's these terrifying angels staring down at you. Well, and I mean, everything must have gotten so sooty and gross just by virtue of the blacksmithing going on in there. It must have been nasty. Oh, and from everything that I've read, this this building was a shithole. I bet. It was ancient and it's been through some trauma. Ancient, ancient, <laughs> ancient. And so if you're... You know, you're looking up and to the rafters and you see these huge carved angels looking down at you. Uh, sometimes it would look like they were weeping mm. because there was a hole in the roof <laughs> 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 because the theater was falling apart. <laughs> oh, they're crying. And that was another thing that worked really well to the theater's advantage because some people reported like there was blood coming down from the sky <laughs> Meanwhile, it was when raining. You, when you're in that suggestive mindset, you're just, you're telling, you're selling yourself on everything at that point. Oh yeah. Every, it. everything could be anything. Yeah, I right? love it. It's great. It's actually, oh, it's really God. fun in it's that, really in that fun. context. Yeah. If you're someone who likes, you know, haunted houses and stuff like that, I think you would really vibe in this kind of a place. Um, <laughs> No, it's just a shithole. Sorry. <laughs> nope. Sorry. This place, we just haven't paid to get the roof fixed. <laughs> yeah, that's the sky you're seeing. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, so, another fun part of the theater was uh, they had these old confessional boxes. Ooh. So, yeah. So, I'll come back to those in a minute and what those were used for. But, yeah, this is all this creepy gothic vibe so of course Mad if gothic. yeah so if you're doing a creepy plays can't think of a better place to possibly do this and the theater to add to sort of that intense uncomfortable vibe uh it was very tiny it was actually the tiniest theater in paris then i i'm not sure about now but um it was right, you mentioned the chapel and chapel's not by absolutely. definition not a big church yeah i believe in total it was 293 seats which is mm, tiny. Very intimate. Yeah. The stage is 22 feet by 22 feet. It's nothing. Nothing. You can you can barely take steps. So right. So you're slipping on blood constantly. It's it's <laughs> it's contained tight action, right? right. Which is terrifying. <laughs> yes. Well, that's that's my point that I'm going to make in a second. Is it says the audience was right up against the stage so much so that a critic once noted. You could shake hands with the actors across the footlights and stretch your legs out into the prompter's box. Mm. That's too close. So close. That's too Nowhere close. to hide. It's like you can't even get away from it. You're like twisting in your chair. Ugh. Have you ever seen cats? <laughs> They're like in your face. It's the worst. 
got a hairball. I hate, I hate interactive (laughs) theater. (laughs) Never been a fan. (laughs) The first few rows, I also imagine, were probably like a splash zone. (laughs) Right. Like you get your own visor, you get like a free t-shirt at the end. I got like, bloodied at the Grand Guignol, you know. Like a Gallagher show. It's great. <laughs> I love it. Gallagher may have been inspired by the GG. We don't know. <laughs> he we're probably just, was. <laughs> yeah, I've been thinking about just calling it double G or GG. So you think about the stage is like 20, 20 I said 22 by 22. So right. within that space, you're creating an additional space where the characters are acting. So you're talking about the tiniest, most claustrophobic settings, like right. a brothel bedroom, an opium <sighs> den, a mm. hospital room. These are all mm. examples of Grand Guignol sets. And so to me, that heightens my personal terror considerably because I am a little claustrophobic. So the idea sure. that I'm in this tiny theater and it's you know it's hot as fuck in there because mm-hmm. it's the turn of the century so there's no air conditioning and you're with a bunch of people who probably aren't great at bathing, smoking, (laughs) drinking, stinking. Yeah. So there was a woman who, um, (laughs) there was a documentary that I watched and there was a woman who was basically a regular theater goer. She went, she went to the Grand Guignol, obviously not that early on, but in the later years and saying how the second you got in there, there was just this smell. And I don't know if it was the incense from it having been a church or, if it was the candles or the wax or something, but it just had this smell about it, this light. And so it, it was a very multi-sensory experience from what everything that I've read and heard. I can imagine the air was thick with like oh. smoky, smoky air. Oh yeah. And, and people are smoking yeah. and yeah, no, absolutely. No. And, and eating, <laughs> people would be <laughs> eating, which is the grossest thing. It's not recommended that you bring your food if you're in the fifth row and up because you're going to get extra dressing on your, uh, you know, beignet. Yeah, no thanks. Your beignet. That was the (laughs) only French I could do. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I just watched a lot of Julia Child shit and I got nothing. nothing. Whatever, that's fine. (laughs) Uh, So to give you a sense of sort of what the seating was like, and I'll do my best to describe this. Um, So basically, you have six rows of seats and that's about a hundred page patrons worth of seats. Mm-hmm. And then surrounding those six rows, there's sort of this circle of seats. Hmm. And so that's rows of like 20, 24 seats. And then in the back are where those confessional boxes are. And there were 13 of those in the theater. That's a lot. So that's all your seating. But that consider that that's your private seating. That's like, I want to go to the Box. Grand Guignol, but I don't want to be seen here. Ah. <laughs> and there's multiple reasons for maybe not wanting to be seen there. One could be, you know, I'm from the upper crust and, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, I don't want to deal with these poor people. I don't want to deal with the grossness around me. <laughs> or it could be because this gross, disgusting show has made you so dang horny that you're going to have sex in that booth. <laughs> oh, no. It's true. <laughs> it's real. It happened. Oh, my God. So every bodily function is being displayed on stage and every bodily pursuit is being pursued in the audience, essentially. Uh-huh. So <laughs> one of my favorite things in, in that same documentary, this documentary is 
amazing. Um, Clive Barker uh, yeah. did, yeah, he did this series called, uh, I think it's Horror A to Z or A to Z Horror. Okay. Um, it was in 1997 and he did a little segment on the Grand Guignol and I, I, I wish I could play it for you, but it's all in French. So, and that's okay. sadly, we're going to be lacking in recorded material today because all of the good recorded materials are French, mm -hmm. which would essentially be a waste of time in this English language podcast. Um, but watch it because it does have subtitles. I'll, I'll set the link for that. But in it, one of the actors talks about uh, the people having sex and how sometimes it would get so loud that he's like, I would yell out things like, are you almost done? <laughs> and if we want to get really, really classless here, uh, the cleaning ladies also had things to say about cleaning out the boxes. Oh, shit. <laughs> it was so gross. Oh, my God. Yeah, so this is, this is tawdry. This is it's the seediest of the seed. It's a seedy, it's literal seed. There's actual it's, seed. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's absolutely disgusting. And but you know, it's an interesting thing about that horror genre. Like some people are watching it. They're turned on for the for the for the thrill of of the excitement, right? Yes. And there are people where those wires kind of cross in a weird oh, way yes. where terror and and the erotic are completely enmeshed and that is a huge part of the grand guignol grand guignol was sexy mm. there was nudity mm -hmm. um there were sometimes sex acts unfortunately some of those sex acts were assault and rape oh god but, yeah no i mean it's uh this was quote unquote real this was it the was, new frontier wow. this was supposed to be you you want naturalism? Here it comes. <laughs> Here comes exhibitionism. Yeah. 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 I mean, wow. you know, it wasn't real. Everything's simul simulated. No one's mm -hmm. actually. Be this is not a snuff film, Luke. Okay. <laughs> okay. God, cut all of that shit. Everything is fake. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so let's dive in a little bit to sort of what your. We've talked about your very visceral experience of being at the Grand Guignol, but what are you actually going to be viewing? Uh, a Night at the Grand Guignol consisted of actually several short plays, and this is one of its most brilliant ideas. Uh, the plays alternate between comedic skits, sometimes like a romantic play, mm. and horror plays. Cool. And usually they save the most terrifying thing for the end. So like, that's what you go home with in your head. Great. And they called this the La Douche Ecosis, which hmm. translates to a hot and cold shower. <laughs> How great is that? That is great. And I love that. I, I love, love French. I, I love the comedy and then bringing, bringing, you know, getting you all scared. That's great. Yeah. I mean, the, the idea of having a variety of acts in an evening wasn't new, but mm -hmm. sort of using it as a tool, as a technique to enhance how scary the scary right. parts were going to be was brilliant. Yeah. And that is what, like most of the horror movies that you enjoy now, there's always parts of either calm or yes. levity to put yes. you into a safe space where you're like, all right, I can relax a little bit right now. And then all of a sudden they scare the shit out of you. Yes. You're lured into this, this false sense of safety and sort of like it's, it's daylight and there's opening credits and I'm good. I'm good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's grinding your bitch. <laughs> 
that's what it, that's where know it's your from. history okay yeah know you know your history uh it's so good it's really it's brilliant that's uh, awesome i know it's, i know it's it's so influential i can you know you can just see the connections to you'll see it everywhere now also yeah. now, now that you're going to learn about it so um in the course of its existence they produced about 1000 or more plays there isn't really wow. a solid record of this there's um you can find in in one of the many books written about grand guignol essentially like their calendar year and what plays played but um i think the stuff is missing i think that that i read that um mm -hmm. but essentially despite that fact there are only 50 scripts that still exist oh no way yeah and That's actually terrible. only 10 or 12 of them are in english so Poop. yeah not fun not great on that front and i hope perhaps i inspire someone now some brilliant person who speaks english and french to perhaps translate more of the French place because that would be wonderful. I'm surprised um, to know that so many are not translated. Uh, yeah, right. I thought that was weird too. I had no idea. Like I, I, I only knew a handful of them myself just from theater. But I assumed, okay, there's got to be like this humongous catalog yeah. that I'm not aware of. There's so much cultural exchange going on. Like, why is this right not happening? of those plays? A incredible amount were written by the uh, the gentleman Andre Delord, who I mentioned. Um, he was so prolific and so brilliant and he himself was a little a little morbid babe he had always <laughs> been fascinated by blood and guts and uh was considered sort of the weird kid <laughs> uh -huh. and so he followed his passions and he started writing these terrible plays <laughs> <laughs> and with the plays are really cool also because it's a lot of new work of course um but uh, it wasn't just the new materials inspired by the, those new stories like they were with um, Metinier's work, but also it was stuff that had been adapted from literary work, like work by Edgar Allan Poe, Whoa. or uh, sometimes it would even be as as things moved forward uh, from silent films like uh, Dr. Caligari's Cabinet. If you're familiar oh, yeah. with that silent sure. movie, they yeah. turned that into a Grand Guignol play. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And that was actually a very interesting relationship the fact that it's not very common that theater and film sort of pass things back and forth yeah but because it was this silent era film the idea of a theater going ooh we're going to take that and we're going to make an actual script for it and it's going to be a fucking fantastic and people would actually be very excited to see that version of an adaptation versus nowadays it's much more the other way. Yes. Right. Much more. Um, where if it's a play that's like beloved, Ooh, let's make that a movie. And generally correct. It maybe it's really that good. Uh, <laughs> depending on the play. Not enhanced most of the time. If it's a musical nine times out of 10, it doesn't go as good as you want it to. <laughs> um, like those live musicals. Yeah. New. Yeah. And there were some, also some grand guignol plays that got then put into films. Um, right. But okay. yeah, so it was a very interesting, a symbiotic relationship at that time. Sadly, that relationship does not last, and we'll talk about that later. Mm -hmm. uh, so all of these plays also are very short. Uh, they're, and simply because they're just not designed to be poor, performed alone. They're performed in an evening with a lot of other plays. So, mm -hmm. you know, maybe they would be divided into acts. Um, the longest plays that I've read are maybe two acts and and like several pages worth of text. Um, really? But most of them are like coming in at like 20 minutes, 40 minutes. They're short. Mm -hmm. 
but that's more than enough time to scare the ever living <laughs> crap out of you. <laughs> which is which is even more exciting. It is, right? It's like one of the most amazing things about these plays is also they are paced so well. Like it's just like I said, it's just good dramaturgy. Mm. It's just good writing where they know how to build their way to the payoff, right? And like we're going to keep you know, tantalizing you and titillating you and getting you close and close and close. Oh, and then we're going to take a step back. Oh, and then we're going to get close again. And it's just, it's so brilliant. It's, it's really, it's, it's within 20 minutes. You really got to pick those moments carefully. Let me tell you what. <laughs> yeah. Pretty impressive. And they also were good about some writers were better at this than other. We're giving like a little bit of exposition without like really being heavy handed with it because some mm -hmm. sometimes the plots were so intense that you needed to have like a ton of fucking backstory <laughs> and those are the <laughs> ones that are not as well written but some of them they're just like yeah this is the action this is what's happening good luck <laughs> uh so uh the actors we're doing sort of this combination style acting of naturalism which again this is the roots of grand union but melodrama also was a big part of the acting and are you luke are you familiar with the term melodrama in like the theatrical sense what a melodrama is yes so for, for the the <laughs> direct definition as a theater historian you look at it as two words you look at uh mela as in melody and drama as in obviously the piece itself and so one version of it is it's it's music enhancing the drama and so music was a big part of the grand guignol right. too it, it definitely added right. to the atmosphere um but in this sense of melodrama it also refers to an acting style of really broad gestures um overemphasis you know, overemphasis a humongous facial expressions mm -hmm. and so we we also see that in the horror genre a lot it's big, big feelings. Big screams. <laughs> Gigantic screams. Gigantic screams. And they were always, especially in these earlier years, always apparently really trying to find that balance of like, this still has to be believable. This is not to be played as camp. That is not what they're going for. They're, they are trying to scare you. They are not trying to make you laugh in right. a scary place. They don't want to lose you. Yeah. No, 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 no. So they... I'm I wish that there was recording of it. I really do, but unfortunately there isn't. So I and again with a, you know, 21st century eye, what is melodramatic melo, melodramatic to me may sure. not be melodramatic to actors at the turn of the century. So That's fair. I may watch them act and be like this is melodramatic as fuck. <laughs> but for the time it might have been super subtle. <laughs> Restrained. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. totally. That makes sense. So it's all relative, but regardless, uh, it's a tough gig. They they have these, being an actor in these plays, you not only are trying to, you know, play with these two different types of acting, but you also have this incredible job to flawlessly execute some very challenging stage tricks. The stagecraft in Grand I am Eagle. so excited to hear about this. <laughs> like, how did they make the blood happen? I know. It's 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 tough. So let me um before we talk about stagecraft, let me talk, let me do some plots of some of these plays for you because mm. ooh, ooh, they are so good. Um and oh, actually, before we even do that, let's let's formally close the chapter on Moray's tenure in 1914 mm -hmm. uh and talk about uh where really the best 
the heyday, the golden age of the Grand Guignol begins under uh, a gentleman whose last name was Choisy, which is just, I love that name so much. <laughs> he was the director from 1914 to 1930. And mm -hmm. he was the one who really ramped up the deaths <laughs> in the and the how dramatic and terrifying they were going to be a lot of the deaths in the previous uh years 1914 and prior mm -hmm. uh it was mostly stabbings or strangulations and things okay. like that <laughs> our french wasi said no no my friend we have seen <laughs> world war one we have seen some shit we have a full arsenal of ways you can be killed yeah <laughs> That's great. So let's up the body count. Let's get different weapons and different methods of destruction. Let's do it. Yeah. So the stupid accents aside, uh, the truth is, yeah, the world was changing. And during this his tenure, the world goes through World War One, mm -hmm. and it goes through uh, the Spanish flu, or oh, you yeah. know the Great Influenza. So a lot of yeah. death, a lot of horror, and. So he's like, this is what we've been doing up until now. It's child's play. Who's going to be shocked by this after what we've been experiencing? We have to take it up a notch. Wow. And so he doubles down, people. <laughs> he makes it more gruesome. He enhances the quality of the effects. He's the one that hires who would become their most famous well-known actress, uh, Paula Maxa, who is the original Scream Queen people. Uh, she's fabulous she wrote her own memoir too about the grand Guignol, which is very cool um mm. i've yet to find an english translation so i guess i really need to get better at my french you know even for all the for all the translation road but road bumps you're hitting incredible amount of research here oh thank you yeah staggering so schwasi brought new type of death onto the scene and he included things like now eyes were being gouged out body Ooh. parts were being ripped off people Ooh. were being blown up people were being dissected alive people were having acid poured on their faces i mean just Jesus. and so if you think about that in a practical sense like how the hell are you going to pull this off on stage in 1914 right how are you doing these things so uh yeah i can't wait to tell you all about it um let me go here to talk about some of my favorite plots. Uh, the Laboratory of Hallucinations, or Le Laboratoire des Hallucinations, uh, written in 1916. It is the story of a doctor who discovers that a patient is his wife's lover, and therefore <laughs> he decides to operate on his brain, and he essentially <laughs> renders him into a zombie-like state. Who is and he goes mad basically. Oh my gosh. And as soon as he can, the patient retaliates by graphically hammering a chisel into the doctor's brain. <laughs> Whoa, you got lobotomized by your own patient, boo. <laughs> I love that. I love that so much. <laughs> That's great. I love the revenge fantasy. That's How you great. like me now? <laughs> and that's I'm a murderer. You made me a murderer and I killed you, my father. <laughs> okay, wow. so this is a very, very famous one. Um, and this is, um, I'm just going to say, I just shouldn't even bother selling you. This was by Andre Delord because they're fucking all by him because he's mm -hmm. amazing. Uh, this was known as crime in the madhouse or une crime dans une maison de feu. I'm just, I'm really having a good time trying to pronounce everything. <laughs> uh, basically in this one, 
a young girl has been committed to an insane asylum despite the fact that she is insisting she's not crazy. She <laughs> becomes the victim of a jealousy-fueled crime uh, enacted by actual inmates. And one of the women is so jealous of how pretty and young she is. And they're, mm -hmm. you know, supposedly mad. So they don't have great reasoning skills. Mm -hmm. So she decides she's going to make her less pretty. And she oh. wrenches her head back and plunges a long scissor into her eye. Ah! <laughs> and she basically had, had convinced the other two women that, well, we have to get the bird that's out of her head. And when they stabbed her in the eye, they were like, the bird didn't fly out, you liar. And so they shove her into a red hot stove. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> and this is all on stage. This I mean, all on stage. <laughs> and this, that's the thing is like, if you have are familiar with serious dramas from years prior, like look at like the Greek tragedies, they wouldn't do that stuff on stage, all the bad stuff happened off stage. You you were not going to witness that. This is like, oh no, we are not holding anything back. Right. And even in artful movies, like the art sure. of, you know, because there was like ratings, you couldn't like show that much gore in filmed. And yeah. there's that, but there's also the auteur side of it where it's like, oh, you just see a shadow of a blade or whatever, like, you know, the art of murderous intent and bloody scenes. But yeah. there's no, there's nothing being hidden here. There's no veil. No. Nothing at all. No, you have no protection. <laughs> uh, I'm terrified. <laughs> uh, uh, this is another one of their really famous ones. This is actually the first one I read. I first read Grand Guignol when I was in college in a mm -hmm. class that I was in. Um, this is called The System of Dr. Tar and Professor Feather, <laughs> a.k.a. Tar ooh, Feather. <laughs> get ready. This is a long one. Feather les systèmes du docteur Goudron et du professeur Plume. This podcast is sponsored by Muzzy. <laughs> <laughs> These kids aren't French. They're American. And they're learning French through the power of Muzzy. Je suis la juvie. On peut pas. Oh, God, you're killing me. You're literally killing me. Oh, God. Oof, oh my god, I'm dying. Uh, that was an adaptation. That's actually based on an Edgar Allan Poe story. I don't know if you've ever read Poe's version of that. Um, so, you know, creeps creeps taken from creeps. You can't go I wrong. I love it. Can't get more um, gothic than Poe. It was actually also a silent film in 1912. So this, cool. this, this one has had a ton of traction. Um, and just to give you a brief rundown of the plot of that one, uh, this... Again, tale as old as time. The uh, There are two journalists who have come to an asylum and they're greeted by this director and everything seems just a oh little boy. weird and all oh these dear. people are there for dinner and then all of a sudden there's a thunderstorm and everyone starts acting really, really weird and then they come to discover, wait a minute, the inmates are running the asylum. Oh no! And, yeah, and it ends basically where they find the doctor's bodies like rolled out onto stage and it's like been clearly slashed to bits by oh, razors. So it's like really gory God. and horrible. As weird as this sounds, it's actually one of the least gory ones and and best written, I think. I think it's it's an exceptionally good one. If you're only interested in reading one, I think that's theatrical. Yeah. Yes. Which is probably why I read it in a college class and she didn't assign one of the ones with like, I don't know, necrophilia. <laughs> <laughs> Learn my lesson with that syllabus. Throw it out. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they did it all. They wow. they that was just a small sampling. Um, there were others that were about 
like I said, necrophilia, cannibalism, you name it, they did it. One of my favorite stories is that the only time the public took issue with one of the murders during the play was, uh, it was one of Andre Delord's plays. It was called Au Petit Jour. And this was in 1921. They used a guillotine to execute a criminal at the end of the play. And people were like, <gasps> how dare you? <laughs> Literally, they demonstrated outside the theater the next day because that was a bridge too far for them. Yes, really? by all means, have sex with that dead body, poke that girl <laughs> in the eye, rape that whole family, but Shut, don't use a guillotine. that bitch in an oven. How, Why is that so offensive? Are they like, is, is, the, is the guillotine now shameful in the French mind? I think that must have been what it was, that it's like, no. that's not us anymore. Wow. That's not who we are. We say and never again, no guillotine. Lord and the director had to go to the police station and they worked out an agreement where the police were like, well, we do believe that the criminal at the end of the play deserves to die, but we've worked it out where the curtain goes down and we don't see them get guillotined. So oh, no one had wow. to watch it. Wow. So a little bit of censorship happening here. Isn't that amazing? Of, yeah. But like of all the things to censor, it says a lot about the French mentality around It's cultural. It's so cultural. I mean, there's a there's a I think at that time still an ongoing PTSD from the reign of terror, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah, and re re renegotiating what it means to be French. Yeah, it's just it's so funny that in these plays all have these horrible themes of madness and human degradation and sadism and depravity, sex, extreme torture, violence, but I guess everybody has their limit. <laughs> um, one of the worst pieces of violence that I've ever come across in any of these plays is in one that's called The Torture Garden. Uh, the Torture Garden takes place in China. And, and the French version of it is Les Jardins du Supplice. Beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Duolingo. <laughs> this is just a long Duolingo ad. <laughs> And once again, this is by the wonderful Andre Delord. And uh, essentially in this play, uh, it's about a woman named Clara who is living in China because she finds it to be far more freeing than the confines of Europe, which to me is so funny. Interesting. <laughs> it was of a time, I guess. But anyway. Uh, living in the Orient, as they would say. And so she she has access to this place called the torture garden. And it is pretty much what it sounds like where uh, it's a brothel type atmosphere and she is bisexual and oh really into sadism side of the torture yeah, garden the pain as and well. Pleasure. Yeah. Mm. The pain and pleasure thing is big for her. And it actually, she transforms almost into like this monstrous person. Something comes over her when she's in the garden. And so I thought it would be mm. fun if we read that terribly gross scene together. So I actually have enlisted uh, Luke and my husband, Jamie, to play some of the characters. And uh, I'm going to read stage directions and play Clara. Uh, Luke is going to be uh, Tiba and Han. And Jay will be Marshall and T. Mao. Let's go. Let's do it. You see, my love, this is almost like a temple. 
an obscene temple consecrated to the gods of sex. I will show you around the dances, the orgies, the strange and barbaric rites. I have heard about them. Will we really be allowed to watch? Yes. Tonight, you will see women in a state of delirium. You will see their frenzy as they throw themselves down before their idol and yield to sexual abandon. It is like a contagious madness. You will see. But where is Tiba? You have saved her for me, haven't you? Of course, milady. I will go and get her for you. He goes to the door on the left. Tiba, come here. No one prepares opium like Tiba. Enter Tiba. She sees Clara and recoils. After a gesture from Timao, she prostrates herself. Ah, here is my little friend. Stand up, my little sister. Look at her bronzed skin. She opens Tiba's dress, revealing her breast to Marshall. Look how supple her body is. Tiba recoils. What is wrong? There's nothing to be scared of. Do you dislike me? No. Well, come closer to me. Mistress, I will get the opium ready. No, come here. Come here at once. No, leave me alone. I don't want to. I beg your pardon. I beg your pardon. She grabs her by the wrists brutally. I want to. Do you understand? Do you hear me? Let go. You're going to hurt me. Let go of me. Leave her alone. He goes to help her, but Han intervenes, smiling. You will obey me, or bitch. She bites Clara's hand. That little bitch, she bit me. I don't know what's wrong with her this evening, milady. You can see where she bit me. The slave has turned on her masters. She will be punished. Timo! Master? You will remove a strip of skin. No, not that, please. I will obey. I will do anything she wants. I have spoken. Timao gives a sign to Li Chang, who holds the wailing Tiba. What are you going to do? She's just a child. Forgive her. No. She insulted me. She must be punished. You're not going to kill her, are you? Calm yourself. She will not die. He takes a knife from Timao's belt. You see this knife, milady, this little blade? A torture like him does not need anything other than this to put his victims through the most atrocious suffering, and yet denying them the deliverance of death. He is going to make two long incisions down the length of her back, and then slowly he is going to peel away a long strip of skin, just as you would peel a piece of fruit. No, no, it's barbaric. I don't want to see it. He head towards the back. No, stay here. Stay next to me. Clara? Stay here, next to me. Don't leave me. I want you here. Look. Look how she's suffering. Listen to her crying, how she's suffering. And now the blood is running. Oh, the blood, the blood, the blood! Clara faints. Han makes a sign, and Timao and Li Chang carry Tiba out. Yay! That was so fun. Super. <laughs> that was so cool. We got to like reenact the Grand Guignol. I know, and it's a really upsetting fucking scene. <laughs> it's so scary. Like it's a this very poor, this poor woman, girl. I mean, I don't know how young she's supposed to be, but I, mm -hmm. I'd imagine she's probably a teenager. Um, so I yeah. will say, reading that was very uh, Interview with a Vampire. 
like that sacrificial victim. You know, Mar Marshall in that situation, we we are him as well mm -hmm. as the audience, you know, so that's that's a really yes, he's the voice of reason. Yes. In those plays, uh, sometimes there is that character who's like, hey, maybe don't don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't. She's trying to get away. Jay played the, it beautifully. He, Jay did such a good job. My my beloved. Um, so you're probably all wondering, how do you do that on stage? How do you pull that off? Right. And so this is where we get into kind of the trickery of Grand Guignol. And this really is one of the most amazing things about it. They played with light and shadow. And honestly, it's this is all like magician's trick stuff. Right. You'll see. So I actually am going to read to you this author, Mel Gordon, wrote a phenomenal book on the Grand Guignol, and he gives a really great account of how the what they call the ribbon of flesh torture uh, oh. is done. So, before Tiba's second entrance, prepare the following backstage. On Tiba's back, at the level of her shoulder blades, affix a thin strip of adhesive plaster colored red on the bottom and flesh colored on the top. When Han says, I said it, Li Chang grabs Tiba forces her to her knees and facing the audience tears off her shirt. As soon as Han gives the knife to Ti Mao, Li Chang with one of his, sorry, with one knee to the ground next to Ti Ba, holds her wrists with one hand and with the other grabs her by the hair and pulls her head down. Ti Mao uses this moment to simulate making two slits in her back. Mm. In reality, he bloodies her back with fake blood contained in a small tube or vial, which he then hides. As soon as T-Mao has finished his preparation, Li Chang pushes down on the back of T-Ba's neck, forcing her forehead to the ground, thereby exposing her back to the audience. At the same time, T-Mao seizes the top end of the plaster and tears it very slowly down her back so that everyone has time to see the bloody scrap peel off T-Ba's shoulders. Ooh. Genius. The precision. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But like so I said, smart. this is all on the actors. Right. This is so right. much responsibility. It's so much work. Yeah, this is just incredible. And uh so practical. It's like practical effects. I mean, it's just very Yes. And uh the a gentleman named Paul Retinue, he was the one who came up with a lot of this stagecraft and the manipulation of lighting and you know a lot uh, the one of the most famous things about the Grand Guignol is its blood, <laughs> in mm -hmm. that it had like several different recipes because they were like well <laughs> different kind of blood happens in different kinds of injuries so we sure. need to have blood that can be runny we need blood that clots and all this yeah. other stuff so uh one of the, one of the they don't they wouldn't ever give away all their secret recipes <laughs> but we're searching for the grand guignol blood recipes join yeah. us so one of the ones was uh blood was a mixture of carmine which if you don't know what that is it's basically like red bug powder they put it in like Ugh. lipsticks and stuff yeah yeah it's gross Ugh. um and glycerin so that was how you could make more of a clotted consistency yeah um that would, yeah so that would be used for cuts that actually flow but if you had a wound that wasn't flowing it might be sort of a red currant jelly mixed with vaseline so for example during an eye gouging scene uh you would be able to just sort of 
reach under a table and find that mixture and slap your slap your eye and then when your yeah. eye comes away all you see is a mess of jelly and um because yeah. it, then it'll look like it won't just look That's... like blood it'll look like flesh yeah exactly yeah. Yeah. um or in another play uh, uh a woman has acid poured on her face same same kind of effect there uh there were little mm. blood vials and pockets hidden like everywhere like <laughs> <laughs> because actors would just very you know very deftly very quickly just reach under a table and then pop their face and just be like oh you know covered in blood so it's the rehearsal process i can't even imagine how long it took to work on the timing of everything um i'm sure what some a fucking mess oh my god the blood my friend they did not hold back from what i have read <laughs> it was so bad it was so so bad showered I yeah no i love this one quote hang on let me see if i can find her so this is a quote from uh paula maxa who i mentioned the original scream queen of the grand guignol Great. uh she said basically this is like her end of the day sort of ritual you had to wash your hair every evening twice when there was a matinee the large <laughs> shirts that i had to wear for the role also had to be washed the wings were like a laundry on top of that i also had to take a bath because i was red from head to toe Ooh. <laughs> oh my god miserable yeah no, super super gross please come home to your come home to your spouse like oh you smell like that goddamn place look at you you're all bloody <laughs> and i just imagine like you know you're on like the the trolley going home and you just find like blood vials in your pocket like oh shit <laughs> yeah i love it i love it um and she's really she's really incredible like i was saying apparently she, there are all of all of these different kinds of uh records of like how many times she was stabbed how many times she was <laughs> strangled how many times she screamed like something like she screamed she's ten the susan the susan lucci of yeah, <laughs> the grand really screamed like a total of ten thousand times or something yeah so she's got this great like record <laughs> um but yeah, so, uh, and the weapons also obviously involved a lot of great stagecraft and trickery, similar sure. stuff that you, that you would even see now, like retractable knives or knives that like ha had some kind of curve on them so that it looked like you were sawing an arm off mm. or something like that. Soaring, sawing mm -hmm. a limb. I said soaring because I'm from Brooklyn. Soaring a limb. They would make, you know, pokers or pins when they're doing all the eye gouging, so much eye gouging in the grand guignol yeah that's really they're going there huh i know yeah. and eye stuff is the worst for a lot it of is people. the worst it's, it's one of the worst things to think about happening to you absolutely i know i know and i it's that's why they probably loved it so much is because they knew it was one of people's number one like squeamish yeah and blinding is such a theatrical thing like, oh my god you know, so much and this, you know yeah it's it's that's that's goes back to the greeks and stuff losing mm -hmm. losing your eyes is a big deal <laughs> um i mean it's a big deal anytime <laughs> symbolic and also painful uh-huh so uh yes hot pokers and pins were actually made out of rubber and they often had like a vial of blood within them so that it looked like they were being slammed into the eye but really they were just squishing out some of the liquid mm -hmm. um yeah just all this all this brilliant brilliant stuff and like i said it's mostly sleight of hand right you know and they still use a lot of these techniques today i know that again when i was like younger and reading up on sort of the making of Sweeney Todd. I don't know about the film, but the musical, they used uh, the same technique with the razor where in the front of the razor, there's like a, basically a thin tube 
-hmm. of fake blood, of stage blood. And when it's pressed upon the victim's neck, it just naturally releases the blood. Or in some cases, there's some kind of a mechanism that you can push with your thumb that makes the blood release. So, so clever. It's really a a weird thing about me where I find that stuff so interesting and so smart, but I don't want to watch it. That is the funny thing. <laughs> no, but the technical side of it is fascinating and the the engineering of it, you know. Yeah. I think the technical and the engineering make me uh, feel comfortable. It's your way <laughs> getting, of getting through it. Yeah. <laughs> like if I can make this as technical and boring as possible, maybe I would be so scared. Please <laughs> um, focus on the blood delivery system. We just focus on that. Okay. <laughs> so unfortunately, like all good things, Grand Guignol did indeed also have to come to an end. Um, it was a slow decline, uh, mm. despite the fact that audiences had loved it. I mean, they were always packed. Uh, things just started to shift, uh, particularly, there's a lot of theories and reasons why it declined. I think it was, a, I think that they all played a part. I don't think there's one thing to blame in particular, but it really mm-hmm. starts when um, the next head of the theater, Jacques Chauvin, comes in. Um, and he is apparently, some of the rumors are he's overly controlling. He changes the repertoire and starts doing more psychological thrillers, doing less of like the canon plays. Mm-hmm. And so people think that, oh, well, you know, that's not us. That's not what we do. People are going to hate that. Um, but he, on the other side of things, people say, yeah, but the theater continued to exist and did fine. And he left in 1938 um, and the theater didn't close till 62. So something else clearly happened somewhere along the way. Uh, the other thing that happens in 1931 is uh, you have the beginning of talking pictures and the film Frankenstein is a huge hit. And, you know, film where they're speaking, how can Grand Guignol you know, compete with that level of naturalism where it's like, oh God, he's literally out in a field with flowers. We can't fake that on our 22 by 22 stage. No, you're limited to some extent. Yeah. And it's hard. And again, sometimes it's hard for us to think about this with our 21st century brains. How amazing that must have been to see this monster walking and talking and they're in a laboratory. I mean, it must have been terrifying and amazing and yeah i could see then going to see the grand guignol feels like a big joke wow you know so that's that's, so that certainly plays a part and that's what i was talking about how the relationship sadly changes Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and so by 1938 what's rolling around the corner luke socialism katie (laughs) (laughs) well world war ii my friend uh germany occupies france as we know uh and the one of my other favorite things about the Grand Guignol, despite the fact that the Nazis hated you know, everything, mm-hmm. especially anything fun, they actually loved going to the Grand Guignol. God damn it. <laughs> They're sick fucks. <laughs> of course they love the Grand Guignol. In fact, Herman Goering was a big fan. Of oh, her. God. Yeah. Goering, <laughs> Goering hearted GG. I, you know, he was definitely a twisted fuck. He definitely had a cut. He has wires crossed for sure. Oh, he was probably in one of the boxes watching the Grand Guignol, right? With a little stupid and SS officer. Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. (laughs) And so, you know, some people feel like the theater might have taken a hit because who wants to be in a theater with Nazis? Nazis are not great for business, generally speaking. (laughs) Um, But again, it still survived. So it's not the Nazis fault. (laughs) 
one thing we can't one thing that we can't blame the nazis for I love it. You survived. You survived uh, National Socialism. You're this great. This is what I'm saying. Staying um, power. Yeah, and it just kept going through different managers, manager after manager. Uh, even uh, a British woman was in charge at one point. Uh, her name was Eva Berkson. She was an actress who owned or operated the theater for a period of time, and she just said. Really, I've almost come to the conclusion that the only way to frighten a French audience since the war is, is to cut up a woman on stage, a live woman, of course, and then throw them to the pieces. <laughs> yes, and? <laughs> <laughs> I say. Harumph! <laughs> this is an outrage. Yeah, because here's, here's part of the real downfall is critics had become a lot harsher. Yeah. And what had happened to naturalism was happened to the Grand Guignol. They were like, this just isn't doing it for us anymore. Mm. You know, we've seen too much. We've been through too much. And it was actually the last uh, owner, uh, Charles Nanon. Uh, he really blamed a lot of it on the Holocaust. Uh, yeah. In 1962, in I believe it was a Time Life magazine, uh, mm. he said, we could not compete with Buchenwald before the war, everyone believed that what happened on the stage was purely imaginary, whereas now we know that it and much more is possible. Wow. Another critic noted, our mothers fainted at Andre Delord's plays. Our, cous our young cousins have a bit of a laugh at them, as they say nowadays. Our fathers allowed themselves to think that horrible things only happened in the theater, but recently I am reminded of the local woman who during an air raid had the head of her neighbor land in her lap. I am reminded of Buchenwald and Hiroshima. It seems that the Grand Guignol can be nothing more to us than a mere diversion now. Wow. So that's some heavy shit. So the mechanized warfare of the 20th century for some mm -hmm. made it so that they didn't want to escape into the blood and guts of the Grand Guignol because of the trauma suffered in Europe and in Asia and in America. That, that is... Yeah. Mind blown. And I mean, listen, it thrived during World, you know, World War right, One and World post World War One. Got through mustard gas. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't but yeah, maybe just hmm. uh Hiroshima and Holocaust took it to another level that people wow. can handle. Yeah. Um, but I I mean, really to to me, if I had to pick one of these theories, like you you backed me into a corner and said, no, blame it on something, I would have to say it was probably uh, you know, psychological thrillers. Uh, like Psycho or Le Diablo mm -hmm. Diabolique um, mm -hmm. in like the 50s and early 60s. Those are the movies that really kind of took out its legs from underneath it because it was really intelligently written. They are mm -hmm. showing you some of the gore um, and they're very scary. You know, they right. mess with your head, which is what Grand Guignol used to do so well. So, um, yeah, and in comparison, they're also doing more realistic acting whereas grand guignol is seems over the top now and mm. probably pretty corny mm -hmm. and i think that would have if metinier had been alive to hear that his theater didn't seem natural anymore it would have broken his poor little french heart yeah <laughs> <laughs> so sad so yes sadly it shrieked its final shriek <laughs> on january 5th 1963 pluck its and final eye and that was the end of the Grand Guignol. And wow. uh, yeah, but it, what a legacy it leaves behind, right? I mean, it's totally. so incredible. Um, you can see it today in pretty much any horror movie you can think of. There's some level of its influence. 
seeing the actual Grand Guignol today, there are universities and small theater companies who do occasionally do some of the canon. Um, Yeah, there was a theater company called the Thrill Peddlers in San Francisco for many years. They they shuttered their doors a few years ago. Um, But I believe one in D.C. called the Molotov Theater. They do they do shows. I don't know when the next one is. Um, I did try to contact them, but they did not contact me back. So if I hear from them in the future, I will certainly let all of you know. Um, What was the saddest part of this research for me is that I thought I was going to come across some like magical, beautiful repository of Grand Guignol artifacts and there's nothing. I'm devastated. Um, I, you know, it's, it all belongs to like individual collectors. If you Google like programs, posters, whatever, you know, you'll see them at auction and be, and you know, you can bid on them and stuff like that. But, and there, I, I've seen from my research, like people will do an exhibit every now and then and pull from some larger, you know, French library collection. There's things even in the New York performing arts library that you can like look at, but it's not, there isn't like one place for all of the stuff. And I've yeah. never been able to find any stagecraft stuff, which really you're like, sucks. I want, you're like, I want 10 boxes. You're like, I, I want to see like, everything. I just want the one big piece of skin. But this is like <laughs> the perfect subject for this virtual exploration. Because I know. Because you have to work really hard to, to collect the data you've collected and it exists in disparate places and things like this. And the fact that a virtual repository like this can provide access to that story and a way through it. I'd never heard of this. I'm so Mm -hmm. excited and enthused and thrilled. And so, you know, even though there's no archival moment to have, you know, you've inspired exploration. Oh, that makes me happy. And on a on a very happy note, you can still go visit the building. I was it, dying to ask you. <laughs> but sadly, the angels are no more. It doesn't look the same inside, mm. which is super heartbreaking. But um, you can go see the building, which actually, it's had a, another amazing turnaround. It now is occupied by the International Visual Theater, which is a company that's devoted to presenting plays in sign language. Oh, that's so cool. Isn't that cool? Very yeah. cool. And it's like a great their, chapter for that building. Yeah, church church to constant horrors and murders to actually helping people enjoy theater. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really it's it's an amazing history. Um this episode is epically long, so I'm not going to talk about all the sources, but I am just going to give a massive shout out to uh two books which are my main uh pieces of of Research, uh, Grand Guignol, the French Theater of Horror uh, by Richard J. Hand and Michael Wilson, and the Grand Guignol Theater of Fear and Terror by Mel Gordon. Also a few different journal articles, all of this I'll post uh, in the uh, on our social media, as well as in sort of the show notes for this episode. But uh, yeah, final thoughts. I just, I absolutely love this topic because it's just it's so big and so insane at the, and so many wild. people have no idea about this and have right. no idea how it, it really has it changed the world it really mm. did it's incredible i can definitely just you know thinking of the connections i'm making like to grindhouse films or you know oh whatever my God, yeah you know it's it's ubiquitous and you know, there's so many of these hidden influences in the media we consume or the books we read or the things we like, you know, and finding an origin part of the family tree 
like where this comes from, from the stagecraft to the social sort of politics of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the incredible French milieu of the whole thing <laughs> that that spills over. Um, it's such a treasure. And to know that it's documented as well as it is, is miraculous. Um, yes. And the fact that it lives on inadvertently, perhaps through people who don't know they're being inspired by it, but, you know, through the many people who pay tribute to it is wonderful. I'm so glad to know that they're still doing the shows. In some yes. Level yeah. The and I, if there's ever one in New York, we're going to, we're going to, I'm going to put on my big girl pants and try to go see it. I'm going to put on a poncho and I'm going to go. <laughs> <laughs> can't wait. Oh my God. I already regret it. I can't believe I said this out loud. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, just that's dm it. us dm us with gg content that's right we want it um, oh that's well, this it has been an me. absolutely epic epic journey katie thank you so much thank you um, this was such an amazing adventure and you know folks this is the morbid museum so we do go there in terms of the content <laughs> so yours there's going to be you know episodes like this where we take you to unexpected places different turns and there is a morbidity quotient to it. Um, So (laughs) thanks for joining us and thanks for staying with us on this tour of the Morbid Museum. We would love it if you would follow us, uh, subscribe, rate our podcast, please uh, like us on whatever you're following us on, whether it be CastBox, (laughs) Spotify, Apple, you name it. Um, We're there. And also please follow us on Instagram at the Morbid Museum. Uh, Additional content is posted there supporting the sometimes visual things we're talking about in this auditory way. We're going to sort of amplify that and echo it on our Instagram channel um, and other social media channels to come. So thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you next time at the Morbid Museum podcast. Bye. Bye.